Good morning. It's good to see all of the chairs here this morning. I wonder what chair has driven the longest distance to get here. It's great to be here with them. Enough for silly jokes. Uh, if you've been with us at all this summer, you realize that we have been looking at different places in the New Testament as to how sanctification happens, as the process of becoming more Christ-like. And we've been kind of uh, finding similar phrases that the Apostle Paul has written as we've gone through the different sermons this uh, past month and a half. And uh, some of them are, are pretty uh, understandable to us, uh, but we've expounded on each one of them. So like, first one that we kind of covered was that Christ died for us, right? Christ died for us. He went to the cross for us. Most of us would not dispute that. We think that's just kind of one of those cardinal doctrines of Christianity. Secondly, we talked about how Christ, or that we live in Christ. And when I preached a few weeks back, uh, we talked about the fact that that Greek preposition in actually has the force of into. So like we're immersed in Christ. Thirdly, we stress the fact that we are crucified with Christ. Not only did Jesus go to the cross uh, for us, but that when we identify with Christ, when we have experienced salvation, we also are crucified with him. And the value of that is that on the other side, when Jesus is raised from the dead after three days by his Father to sit at the right hand of God, he bestows upon us, as people who follow him, all these different gifts, uh, these rights, this inheritance that comes along with being a believer. And then lastly, we say that Christ, through his Holy Spirit, lives in us. Not only do we live in Christ, but that Christ lives in us. And that is the, the heart and spirit of sanctification. Today, we're going to look at some uh, verses that are really going to add some uh, practical points to this. As Josh just read a little while ago from Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul starts off with two very strong commands, all right? To seek those things that are above, and secondly, to set your mind on things above. Uh, the mind is an important part, if not the most important part of sanctification, because what you think, what you believe, uh, what your attitude is, is how your actions will follow. When uh, Pastor Doug preached a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 6, he emphasized a, a, a verb in there, which he should have, and it says, consider or reckon yourself dead to sins. So in Colossians chapter 3, Paul's given us the same idea. Set your mind on things that are above. I'm going to look at the rest of these verses and structure it around three imperatives, three commands that uh, Paul is giving to us. And the first one we find in verse 5, where he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are all commands to put to death things that revolve around sexual sin. The Apostle Paul, just like us uh, today, found that most people really stumble in this area of sexual sin. Out of all the sins that he could mention, uh, Paul decides that this one is worthy for the church members of Colossae to focus on, to think about, and that is sexual sin. Uh, my wife and I were talking about this this morning, how in Paul's day, it was very common 
for the people that uh, just lived in Asia Minor and, and the different areas of the Roman Empire to have access to temple prostitutes, to have open relationships with other people. Uh, sexual sin was really defined by Christianity. When the gospel started spreading throughout the world, uh, the concept that God had established at creation of one man, one woman coming together and forming a family was really begun. And people were supposed to live by that standard. But by this time in the first century, uh, sexual sin had really gone out of the boundaries. Uh, people were commonly practicing things that made God unhappy. When I was a young man, fairly new Christian, uh, 1979, I was in college, and I got to go to a conference in Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, and one of the keynote speakers was Dr. Billy Graham. Most of us have heard of him, and uh, he did a great job of sharing uh, that morning uh, some of the truths of God's Word concerning going around the world and sharing the gospel. But then right after that, we were invited, if you wanted to go, to a small, you know, breakout session with him. And, you know, to my amazement, only about 20 men showed up, 20 young men. And of all the questions that he got asked, the one that we dwelt the most on was, Dr. Graham, do you struggle with lust? And he was very honest with us. And he said, of course. You know, what man doesn't? And he talked about how some of the practical things that he does to put it to death, just like Paul's encouraging here. But one thing that he said, and I'll never forget it, is he looked at us with great compassion. And he said, I don't know how you young men get along today, how you stay pure for God. You have so many things that can cause you temptation, so many things in your life that can get in the way of your purity. That was 1979. Can you imagine? Today, 2020, it's everywhere. Pornography is everywhere. It's on our phones. It's on our iPads. It's on TV. We have access to anything of even the most gross sexual practices. It's everywhere. And as parents, we struggle to raise our children as Christian parents in a world that has gone insane in this area. How do we do it? How do we do it? If Dr. Graham felt such compassion for us in 79, I don't know what his thoughts were before he passed away just a couple of years ago. It's a tough world. But Paul says, nevertheless, put to death your sexual immorality. There may be some of you who are struggling greatly in this area that are listening this morning. Can I just encourage you that I would love to talk to you? One of our pastors on staff would love to talk to you. Send us an email. It'll be kept confidential. We're not looking to out anybody. We just want to help. If you would like help in this area, just call us. Uh, I work with several men that struggle in this area. We'd love to walk you through how to put this to death. Paul thinks that this is a necessary step of sanctification, and yet how many Christian men live their entire Christian lives as elders, as deacons, serving in Sunday school, doing so many different things, but still they have this, this, this besetting sin, this inability to get rid of this very thing that they brought with them from their before Christ days into their Christ days now, where they're walking with Jesus, and they just don't fit together. Secondly, Paul says this, we had put to death, now we're supposed to put off or put away, uh, but now you must put away, in verse 8, uh, all anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. All of these are focused on our relationship with each other in the community of Christ. Whether you're talking church, you're talking care groups, you're just talking about one-on-one -on -one interactions in the body. Uh, these are things that are focused on breaking the harmony of fellowship between members of the body of Christ. Paul is saying to his church, this is how you should behave, but also let's not do this. Let's not walk around just like we used to walk around, full of anger and hatred, uh, lying to one another, obscene talk. Well, there should be a difference in how we as Christians relate to one another than what we used to do before Christ. There has to be a distinction. So Paul is saying, put to death sexual immorality, and he's also saying, put away these things that are relationship breakers, designed so that you may dominate another person, designed so that you can create a false image of yourself to people that you're in church with or you're in a care group with. Put them away. I think, I love the phrase <clears throat> that he uses here about having idolatry, because what we're really seeing here is that when we don't do this, we are creating an idol of the heart. Think of it this way. In your heart, there is a throne. Who sits on the throne of your heart? Who dominates you? Who is your king? If you're participating in sexual immorality, if you break the fellowship with other believers because you're so angry, because you can't stop being that person you used to be, really the person sitting on your throne is yourself. You've created a God that's called you. For me, it would be David. David sits on the throne, right? And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Paul is asking us to consider for a second that we have an idol possibly sitting there and get rid of it because the only person that should be sitting on that throne is Jesus Christ himself. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he gave his life for us. When Christ, through the Holy Spirit, lives in us, remember point number four that I just ran over, uh, then he sits on that throne. We obey him. I was reading a few weeks ago in my own personal time in the Word, uh, Isaiah 44, and I love that chapter because uh, Isaiah, giving a word of knowledge to his people, right, says that a man takes a log, he cuts it in half, and with one half of that log, he chops it into pieces and he feeds it so that it creates fire for his food, to warm his house, and so forth. Very functional. With the other half of the log, he whittles that down and he creates an image, an image of a god. It's an idol. And he puts that into a place of prominence where he can have access to it. And he gives offerings to it. He prays to it. He has great expectations of it. And Isaiah says, how foolish is that? What's that man going to think when his prayers go unanswered? What's that man going to think when he really realizes all he's done is taken a piece of wood and he knows full well can do nothing for him whatsoever? That's an idol. Now, in the Old Testament, if you heard a sermon or if Isaiah was really getting to you by what he was saying, you could walk home, go to that idol, however it looks, pick it up, take it out of your house, and throw it into the fire. That idol is done. That man says, I am idol free. Right? 
in the New Testament pages, it's not so easy. Because that idol is not external, it's not out there, it's actually right here on my throne. And it's a never-ending battle for us as Christians. It's a never-ending battle for us as Christians to assess who's sitting on the throne of my heart. One of the things my wife and I love to do is teach families. And one of the things that uh, is really an emphasis of our teaching is to help parents, help children recognize what it means to have an idol of the heart. And in fact, to get rid of it, to acknowledge it, to get rid of it, and to replace it with Jesus Christ. How much more do we need to do this as adults? Put to death sexual immorality. Put away anger and bitterness and malice. Do not lie to one another. These things are not of God. This is not what God would have us do. And then he even goes further in verse 11, and I love this. Here he says, here there is not Greek. Where is here? Here there is not Greek nor Jew nor circumcised nor uncircumcised. Well, here is in the church. He says, when you gather together, if you're not going to be full of anger and malice and bitterness and lying to one another and obscene talk, then also here there is not recognition of the fact that you may be Greek, you may be Jew, you may have practiced circumcision, you may not have practiced uncircumcision, you may be a barbarian, you may be a Scythian, you may be a slave or free. It really doesn't matter. Because when we come together, part of the sanctifying process is not just you as an individual, but for us as a church. And we are free in Christ. Our identity is him. It doesn't matter what race you are, what culture you represent. When you come in here, all focus is on Jesus Christ. All focus is on him. He is the one that we want to, as believers, to give tribute to, to worship, and to honor. Thirdly, the Apostle Paul says this, our third major command, put on then. The first two commands are negative. Put to death, put away, the third command is positive. So in this case now, what should we do? Well, then put on. Again, cognitive verb, put on. It sounds almost like we're putting on clothes or we're putting on an object, but of course there is no physicality to what Paul is saying. He is just saying, change your mind. Change your mind. Put this in your mind as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's describing you and he's describing me as believers in Christ. Here's what we're supposed to put on. Compassion, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, oh man, patience. You pray for any of those lately? Have you prayed, God, please help me to be more humble. Help me to be more patient. He will take that job on. Uh, you better be ready for it. But we're supposed to do that voluntarily. Bearing with one another right? Forgiving one another. Oh, man, and he comes across very strong on this point. Forgiveness is a requirement. He says, in fact, that as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. It's not optional. Check your heart. How much anger do you have at someone or some group, something in the church amongst God's people? Forgive them. Put it aside. 
We spend our whole lives sometimes just in furious anger. We, we just can't get over certain things. People have hurt us, situations have come about, but Paul says we have to forgive. And above all these things, it is all bound together in love. In love. That's an amazing thing. We moved to town, uh, Iowa City, in 2006. Uh, my wife and I, in January, uh, we came over here as uh, an invitation from uh, the exact pastor at that time to take on our duties here after being 18 years in a church in Nebraska. And uh, we knew that when we came over here, my 80-year-old mother was already experiencing problems. Uh, she had dementia. It was just beginning. Um, I saw when we went to her house one time uh, the TV remote, and I picked it up and I looked at it, and it had kind of a chalk, uh, a powder, all over it. And I was thinking, what in the world is that? What happened? So I said to Mom, what, what's happened to your TV remote? And she says, I don't know. And I said, okay, well, it worked, you know. So it was sitting there. Later that afternoon, uh, I heard her phone ring. And Mom reached over and picked up her TV remote, and she's like, hello? Hello? And I realized what that powder was. It was her face makeup. And she must have done that many, many times. And at other times, I saw her pick up her phone and click at it to try to change the TV channels. And I own and I at the time thought, well, that's kind of funny. You know, uh, mom's beginning to show some signs of age, but it's not a huge thing at this point. She's very active in her church and so forth, so forth, so forth. What about 2008, two years after we moved here, the pastor of her church called me and he said, Dave, uh, you need to do something about your mom. Uh, the people in the church that she picks up on a routine basis and gives them rides, and mom thought that was an act of service she had done for years, uh, are terrified. Terrified of her driving. Yeah, we're not going to let that happen anymore. We have to tell her she can't drive, right? So I call my mom, and I said, Mom, uh, people are frightened of the way you're driving, and I think we need to take some action, and the biggest thing that we need to do is move you here by us. And of course, her response was classic for my mom. She said, land sakes, doesn't that pastor have anything better to do than to call you and tell you about my driving? Um, until the day she died, six years later, she had warm words, not for that pastor. It always came back to her. Well, I remember that pastor, couldn't remember his name, but she could tell me the story about how that pastor had to call and, you know, remove her freedoms. Uh, so, long story short, we moved her here, and she lived at an apartment for a while. She went to Walden Place for a little while, an independent living situation, and eventually she wound up at the Memory Gardens, the Alzheimer's unit, at uh, Legacy here in town. Uh, it was quite a journey for five or six years. We walked out with her. And I'm so privileged because my wife was the one that was her day-to-day -day care person. Uh, she was absolutely amazing in that role. I loved it. There was only one time that I tried to broach the subject with my mom in the midst of her Alzheimer's. It was really kind of close to the beginning of when she was really struggling with this. And I said to her, Mom, you realize that you're forgetting things, right? You have dementia. I avoided the word Alzheimer's. She had already seen her grandfather and her father die of this disease, and that would have terrified her. But I just said, you have 
dementia. And already by this time, sometimes she couldn't remember my name, she couldn't remember my wife's name. It had advanced quite a bit. And I just wanted to know if she was aware, if it was painful to her or frightening. And she goes, well, what am I forgetting? Obviously, she wasn't even aware of it. What am I forgetting? And I kind of ran through some, you know, at the moment situations that had gotten confused with her. And she just looked at me and she just said, okay. She looked kind of sad. But the nice thing about that kind of cognitive impairment is about five minutes later, she was right back telling me stories from her childhood and stuff. She completely forgotten that we had had that conversation. And I never broached it again. I didn't see any need to. She would take, we would go on drives, and I'd pick her up every Friday uh, to go to Perkins, because that's what she loved. She had breakfast at Perkins when she was living on her own every day, or every, yeah, about every day for about 25 years. But she would tell me stories, so like, my dad's playing baseball right over there. Well, her dad had died in 1974, you know. We go by the big barn on Scott Boulevard that's always decorated with Halloween stuff. Oh, I used to play in that barn as a little girl. Great stories, you know. I had a, in my car a uh, satellite radio, and I tuned it into the 40s channel, and she just loved to sing along with all those things. I have to say, uh, I enjoyed her during those years, but it was always one little less piece of reality. It was always a chunk of who she was was gone forever. And she finally passed away, and we had that big gap in our life. But it was the Alzheimer's that took her. It was the forgetfulness of who she was and what she was supposed to be about. I think when I look at what we're reading in today, it comes to me that when it says, set your mind on the things above, that sometimes we as Christians, and we think about this sanctification, and we've been preaching about this week after week after week, I think the problem is, is that at times we think that we can go this far with Christ. I, I, I want to be sanctified. When we first become believers, especially if you're an adult or a teenager when you become a believer, you can't get enough of Jesus Christ. You can't get enough of learning. You're so proud of the fact that you got a Bible. Wow, this is really cool. And somebody inscribed the front of it. You know, either your church or the person who's discipling you, and it's like so neat, and you're, the pages turn so crisply, and you're just going to become a student of the Bible, and it's so much fun, and you get to go to conferences, and you can't get enough of the Word, and you're growing in Christ, and I don't know if there's a 100% marker out there somewhere, but you're at 10%, and you're at 20%, and you're just giving your life to Christ. You're starting to give uh, tithes and offerings. You're being obedient in your finances. You're, you're changing your whole lifestyle and what you do and what you don't do. And then at some point, it seems like we stop, doesn't it? It seems like the brakes are put on. Well, I've gone far enough. Is it, very rarely is it because we are stopped by something externally. Very rarely are we hindered by another person, a government, uh, a cultural barrier. It's usually just us. Usually it's just us. I've grown this far, and sometimes we, it's just a matter of becoming content. I, I feel like I've done this well enough. I go to church every week, I give. Uh, maybe not as much as I should, but I give something. 
You know, I, I've taught Sunday school, we've done our job in nursery, we are making sure that our kids get to all of the youth group events. I'm there. I'm sanctified. You know. Now, that's not what this is saying. Paul is saying there's a push. There's a push from the Holy Spirit internally. Get rid of those idols on your heart's throne. Take care of business because there's always something there. Pride, bitterness, doubt. Let Jesus reign. Because when Jesus is reigning, one, we're humble. We realize that no matter how far we've come, there's still a great journey ahead of us. When Jesus is reigning, we have a purpose in our life. We can see, maybe not a finish line, but we can see that we have some things to do, some places to go. Has this community all heard the story of Jesus Christ? Has the world everywhere understood the gospel? Are people living righteously? Are the saints encouraged? I mean, just some basic questions, especially right now, right? In this COVID environment, Josh was just talking about this. In this COVID environment, it's so easy to get discouraged, to be angry, because we can't do those things that we're so used to doing. Oh man, I loved the fun that we used to have. I love being able to pick up and go and go out to eat and hang out with friends and so forth. And since I can't do that, just frankly, life is horrible. It's just not right. And Jesus is still here. Jesus, you know, I hate to say this, but Jesus might actually be working through the COVID to change our hearts, to sanctify us even further. When we look at how the first century Christians were challenged to change their lives so drastically for Christ, and it set them on a, on a pathway that eventually the entire Roman Empire was transformed by the 300s into a Christian nation, so to speak, what are we doing? This COVID is waking us up. This COVID is shaking our foundations. The church needs to come to life. God's people need to come together. Not just physically. I'm not saying, oh, let's open the churches. What I am saying is that we need to come together in prayer. Attitude. Meekness, kindness, and so forth. Uh, the Bible makes it really clear that before we become, became Christians, that God himself reached out and grabbed us. We love him because he first loved us, it says in the word. What a great truth. That means that God himself has already modeled for us what it means to be compassionate, kind, gentle, and so forth. So when Paul's saying to do this, what he's really saying is become like God. God is not disturbed by COVID. God is not put off by COVID. God's going to work with COVID to accomplish his purposes. What's God challenging you to this morning? What's this sanctification all about? Why work on this stuff? Just become more holy? Well, that's not a bad goal. But it's to become more holy so that you can be of greater use to God's kingdom. He cannot use us. He will not use us the way that many of us are 
with so much of the world still left in us from our BC days, before Christ's days. He wants to use us the way that he has shaped us and molded us. He is the creator. We are his creation. Let his process take hold of your life and your heart and mold you into the person that you're supposed to be. I love how this section ends. It's a great passage of worship beginning in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Amen. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ah, when we get together, I don't care what's happening in this world. I really don't. Because my focus is on Christ. My ears are open to what he wants me to do. Fight for justice? Possibly, right? Minister to his saints? Absolutely. Spread that gospel? 100%. Make my home pure? Yeah. Put to death sexual immorality in my life and in my family's life? Absolutely. Put away bitterness and anger and malice and, and obscene talk and lying? Oh, goes without saying. Now what am I going to put on? These things. And when we do that, oh, our singing and our sound is so harmonious. There is going to come a day in the not-too-distant future where we are going to be gathered physically together and we are going to sing. I don't know about you guys, but I, I have to confess I've been one of those that has all too often stood in the back thinking about what else is coming this morning, not focused on the singing. That's something for the worship team to do. But I'm telling you what, when the saints are gathered again, I'm going to be singing. I'm going to be worshiping because God has worked a wonder in my life and in the lives of everyone that is here. Whatever you do, it ends, it says, and whatever you do, do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. May we do everything that we do in word or in deed in your name. May we live for you. May we put to death May we put away those things that do not honor you. And instead, may we put on all the things that are about you. May we live our lives in harmony together. In Jesus' name, amen.